Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for today. Thank you that you have gathered us um, by redeeming us, setting us apart to be your people, reconciling us, adopting us into your family so that we may worship you, so that we may declare the praises of you, Lord. And may the world see through our worship what a wonderful God you are. And Lord, I pray that as we continue in our worship and as we open up your word, that you may speak to us, that you may reveal truth to us, that you may teach us marvelous things about you. Lord, help us to, as we look at this passage, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a mind to understand. Lord, I pray that as we see the warnings that Paul give us, that we would take this warning serious. And as we are reminded of the work that you have done, may our hearts be reminded of what you have accomplished for us. Lord, you know us. You know what we're going through. Can you speak to us? Can you stir in our hearts? Can you reveal truth that we need to know, that we need to understand? And Lord, for those who have not surrendered their life to you, who does not know you, who do not know that they need you, Lord, can you make it known to them this morning and help them to respond in faith and to cry out to you for for salvation? And may you save them as you reveal truth to them as they cling to you by faith. So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We're continuing our series through um, the book of 1 Corinthians. And and really in this book, what Paul is doing, um, he's addressing the church and he's addressing 10 issues uh, within the church. And really what we're seeing he does in every single issue is basically the same truth as he's reminding the church of Corinth. Because you are God's holy people. In other words, you have been set apart by God. You ought to live like because you've been set apart by God. The more you grow in purity, the more you grow in distinction and looking different from the world, the more you will grow in unity. And so that's my hope for us as a church is that even though all of us, if we have to be honest, we're influenced by our culture, we're influenced by the world, and the more we grow in our understanding that we have been set apart by God as God's holy people, and the more we grow distinct and look different from the world, world, the more we will mature in purity and unity and become the church he's asked us to become and made us to become in a sense. Now in our passage today, Paul's going to address the third issue of 10 issues. And really he's rebuking them for bringing lawsuits against one another. And so Paul's not rebuking uh, the church in Corinth because of the disputes. Like that's just normal. When you have people coming together that are sinful, you're going to have disputes. But what he is rebuking them in is how they're dealing with these disputes. Instead of handling them in-house and trying to settle, they're going to unbelievers. They're going to the court of, of law as, they, as they're just showing the world like, like this is how the church is supposed to act. And that is what he is rebuking them on. And again, what we're seeing is this church is basically embracing the worldly values, the worldly culture. 
And again, Paul is going to remind them of what God has done in their lives and who they are and what they must become in light of who they are. So let's look at our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So let's just stop here. So here's Paul's main charge. Here is his main rebuke. That believers who have legal dispute before with other believers, instead of settling those disputes among themselves within the church, what are they doing? They're going outside of the church. They're going to the court of law before unbelievers. Now, for us, we're reading the passage and we're thinking to ourselves, well, isn't that why there's judges and jurors and all of these things? Like, like that kind of looks a little weird in the 21st century. So, so what does Paul mean by that? And so what I think we need to do is we need to look at verse 1 and see what does Paul clearly state in the rest of the passage and then maybe look at the historical context so that we can understand the reasoning of why Paul is rebuking them for settling these disputes outside of the church rather they should have done it inside the church. Now, one of the things in verse 1 that's not really clear is what, what instance is Paul talking about? Like, like Paul does not refer to a specific instance or maybe a multiple instances. That's not clear in our passage, so we don't really know what he's talking about. So rather than us speculating, let's find out what is clear in this passage. I think there are two things that are fairly clear in the passage. The first one is obvious. Who's Paul addressing? Paul's addressing the, the church. He is addressing the church collectively. He is calling them saints. So in a sense, who's responsible in dealing with these matters? The church is, okay? The second thing that I think Paul is clear on, the dispute that Paul addresses, in a sense, are civil disputes, not criminal disputes, okay? So it has to do with civil law, not criminal law. And here's why I say it's clear. Because the word dispute in Greek can be translated as a grievance, a matter of life or a lawsuit. So what kind of grievance is it? Well, in verse 2, if you look at it, we're going to see he's going to use the word trivial cases. Verse 3, he's going to use the word, the, 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 the phrase matters of this life. And in verse 7 to 8, we're going to see it involves cheating or defrauding. So with that implication, if it's just civil disputes, trivial cases, matters to life that revolves cheating or defrauding, then what this implies is, Paul's not saying the church must handle all civil, all like cases regarding law. In other words, it should not be handling criminal cases. When there is sexual abuse or where there is murder, the church should not be dealing with it. But rather, they should go to the authorities. You're like, where in Scripture does it say that? Romans chapter 13. You can read that for yourself. We submit to governing authorities. Why? Because they are God's judgment in judging if you break the, the law. But when it comes to these small, civil, trivial cases, the church should be dealing with it. Now again, 
you're like, it's kind of strange, it's just not how we roll here. So let's look at the historical context, which I think is helpful for us. Then we can understand like why Paul's actually rebuking them. So in the, in the first century, uh, Roman society, uh, their legal system was very similar to ours, maybe not as extreme, but basically those who took others to court were normally those of higher social standings. In other words, your chances of getting sued by somebody was always somebody that was really wealthy and had the financial means to take you to court. And so when they would take you to court, they would normally take those to court who did not have the financial means. And so basically what's happening in that culture, you had the wealthy oppressing the poor. And more than likely, this was going on in the church. And the reason why I say this was going on in the church is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's actually going to rebuke the rich Christians for shaming the poorer Christians, for taking advantage of them. The second thing that we have to understand in that culture is judges and jurors in the first century with Roman civil civil litigation were notoriously corrupt. In other words, they enjoyed bribes. They enjoyed ruling in favor of their wealthy friends because if they rule against their wealthy friends, what's going to happen? Retaliation. And by ruling in their favor, you, you scrub my back, I scrub your back. Remember, I ruled in your favor in this case. Now I'm in the same position. You better rule in favor of mine. And and, and Paul uh, similarly experienced this unjust thing. Uh, When he was incarcerated, he was kept in prison for two years under the governor Felix. And and, And the book of Acts tells us because what did Felix want it? He wanted to be bribed. The reason why he kept him in jail is because he was hoping that Paul would bribe him. And so these judges and these jurors were a bunch of corrupt people. And that's why Paul calls them in verse 1. He says, and you take it to court before the unrighteous. That's why he calls them unrighteous. Because they unjustly enforce the law. And they're acting wicked in God's sight. They're not after justice. They're after lining their own pocket, protecting their own, where the wealthy is oppressing the poor. And the third thing is in this context is civil litigation results normally in factions and rivalry. When somebody takes you to court, how's that relationship going to end? I love you, brother. I'm sorry. No. You're a bitter enemy. You ruined my life. I'm going to retaliate. And so what happens when everybody's taking each other to court? Doesn't bring unity. Brings division. It breeds bitterness and retaliation. In this this church, in the church of Corinth, was a great source of division. And so Paul rebukes them. In a sense, he's saying, look, guys, these cases that you're taking each other to court, it's trivial cases. Like, why are you going to the unrighteous? We all know how, how the law works. We know who's going to win at the end. It's the wealthy. 
Those guys are so corrupt. They really don't care about justice. They just care about lining their own pocket. And look at the end results. It's going to cause division. And now what Paul is going to do is he's now going to give them reasons for his rebuke in verse 1. And he's going to use the argument from greater to lesser. Look look, look at verse 2. He gives them two reasons of why they shouldn't be doing what they're doing in verse 1. Verse 2 says this. Well, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? So in other words, what Paul is doing, he's giving the reason why they should not be taking Christians and fellow brothers and sisters to these civil courts. And he's using the argument from greater to lesser. In other words, what he means by that. So for example, here's the reasoning he uses. If I can run one mile in 10 minutes, I should easily be able to run 100 yards in 10 minutes. Like, like that's the point he's making. So he's saying the very first reason of why there should be dealing with the disputes in-house, why Christians should not take one another to the court of law, is because Christians should is, is Christians are competent to judge the world, they should be competent to be able to judge among these trivial cases. Like he says, we're going to judge the world. Now, some of you are like, well, wait a second here. What does it mean we're going to judge the world? Isn't God going to judge the world? In a sense, Jesus is going to be the ultimate judge. But we kind of even talked about in the assurance part. What are we to Jesus? We are united with Christ. And because we're united with Christ, we're one with Christ, we are in Christ, Christ is in us. His victory is our victory. In a sense, indirectly, if he is going to judge the world, we, in a sense, at the end, are going to judge the world. Um, A couple of Bible references that you can write down, and then you can study this further for your homework this afternoon. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. Um, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And then Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Daniel 7, 22, Matthew 19, 28, Revelation 20, verse 4, where it kind of alludes to Christians judging the world with Christ. So why is the first reason uh, why we don't take disputes, these trivial cases, uh, to outsiders? Because the greater argument is, look, if we're going to judge the world at the end of the day, We should be competent to deal with these trivial cases in-house. The second reason is, uh, since Christians will judge matters pertaining to the next life, a.k.a. he's talking about us judging angels, then Christians should be competent enough to judge matters pertaining to this life right now. Now, what does Paul mean by us judging angels? I'm going to be honest, it's not really clear uh, because God has already judged fallen angels and God has already prepared eternal fire, the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. So we don't really know what he means by that. But what we know is very clear, as he said twice now, if Christians are competent to judge the world and to judge matters of life to come, We should be competent to judge trivial cases right here and right now. And then in verse 4, Paul basically restates the main charges in the form of a question. Look at verse 4. He says this. So if you have such matters, 
Do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? Now, a more formal reading of the Greek, those who have no standing, can be better read as those who are disdained. So in other words, what Paul is saying is this. If believers... Disdain the, the if, if unbelievers disdain the values of believers. In other words, do believers and non-believers share the same values? No, we don't. They disdain our values and we disdain their values. If that is the case and you don't have the same values, why do you run to them to judge among you? In other words, in his question, he's like, guys... This makes no sense why you'd be doing it. Why would you go to somebody to make a judgment if they don't share the same values? Makes no sense. Look look, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. I say this to shame you. Can it be that there's no wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers? In other words, like like Paul is using very strong language here. He says not only that what you're doing is shameful, but you should be ashamed of yourself. And then really in a sarcastic tone, he, he says, how is it possible that there's not one wise person. And by the way, all of you thought you're so wise and so smart. That's why you want to align yourself with Apollos and Cephas and Paul and cause division because you think you're the smartest and the brightest. And now sarcastically is saying, really? There's not a single person that have any wisdom to serve as a mediator between these two believers that have a dispute? I thought you guys were so smart. I thought you guys are so wise. You should be dealing with it inside, but instead, you run to unbelievers. And again, unbelievers' wisdom is foolish compared to God's wisdom. And then he continues to ask piercing questions. Look look at verse 7. He says this, As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Basically, the argument that Paul is using is when you take a brother or when you take a sister to court, your intentions is to do what? Your intentions is to, to win, right? And he says, by doing that, You've already lost. You've lost. You're thinking you're going to win, and yet by the very act of doing it, you have already lost. And you're like, well, how have they lost? Well, first of all, the way they've lost is it breeds division. How are you going to reconcile between a brother and sister that take each other to court? Now it breeds division. And what do unbelievers think about the church? They act just like us. There's nothing so special about them. And Paul says, that is shameful. So when believers have disputes and they take it outside, the church loses because it breeds division. And it is a bad rap on the church because the world looks at the church and says, they're just like us. Why go? Why follow? Why worship this God? 
There's nothing new, different about them. And Paul says, wouldn't it be just better to lose? Wouldn't it just be better to be wrong than to be cheated? Than to lose at the end of the day something that is much bigger than yourself? And then in verse 9 to 10, he gives a, a warning. He says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Paul gives a list of sin. And again, this list of sin is not an exhaustive list. What's the point that Paul is making by listing this sin? Paul is warning the church. He is warning them, and in effect, he is saying, hey guys, don't think that as you continue to live a sinful lifestyle, a sin that so characterizes you, and you are unrepentive of that sin that so characterizes you, that you will inherit God's kingdom. By living that way and by acting like that way, you are unrighteous. These sinful lifestyles do not characterize citizens of God's kingdom. And that is the warning. If you continue in your sin, and that sin so overtakes you that it characterizes you, don't fool yourself. Do not be deceived. In other words, what he is saying and what the other apostle says, what, what Peter said is, confirm your calling. Investigate your salvation. Do not be fooled by that. And so as he warns them, Look at what he reminds them of. Because again, the warning is severe. And warnings in the Bible are meant to be severe because they are meant to draw our attention. But then he reminds them of this. Look at verse 11. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in these warnings, Paul reminds them, that's who you used to be. Past tense. The sin that Paul listed that characterized unbelievers or people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's who they used to be past tense and then he reminds them not of what they have done but rather what God has done and in other words a way of looking at it the only difference between them who they are now and who they used to be the people that are characterized in verses 9 and verses 10 what's the difference the only difference is is that God has intervened that's who you used to be that's what you used to do until what? Until God intervened. And how did God intervene? He said, and you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Notice these aren't things they were doing to themselves, but rather these were things that God was doing to them. 
And how did God do it? He did it through the work of His Son on the cross and through His Spirit. In other words, God intervened by sending His Son to live a life we could not live and die a death we were all supposed to die. And the Spirit took the work of the cross and applied it to our lives. That's what Paul reminds them of. What did God do? God intervened by washing you. In other words, you were filthy in your sins. And God washed you. He purified you. He made you clean. He forgave you of all of your sins. God sanctified you. What does the word sanctify mean? That means he has set you apart. He has made you his people. He has made you holy to be his people. God has justified you. In other words, he has legally declared you to be righteous. This is what God has done. This is how God has intervened. This is who you used to be. This is who you now are because of what God has done. And here's the point that he's making and reminding them of this. Is that in our passage, Paul's telling the Corinthians how they must behave, how they must live, and then roots that behavior in what God has already done. Like, I think one of the things we have a really hard time to understand, some of you have even confessed that, for most of us, we think we need to do in order to accomplish. That's moralism. That's legalism. Because at the end of the day, who's saving you? You are because you need to do. But the Christian life is not like that. The Christian life is not a matter of doing, but rather of what has been done. But then it doesn't stop there. It doesn't say, well, because Christ is done, you just kind of just sit on your hands and you just be. No, the Christian life is remember how God has intervened on your behalf through your, his son, Jesus Christ. And because of what God has done, because of what he has accomplished, now you can do. I don't have to, I don't need to become holy in a sense. Why? Because God had already made me holy. And because he's made me holy, what do I do? I don't live an unholy life, but now I strive towards holiness. In other words, the phrase, and I want you to understand that phrase, what Paul is saying, and I think it's an easy phrase to understand. Become what you are. That's the phrase. Become what you are. If you're washed, if you're sanctified, if you're holy, if you're declared righteous... Past tense, that's what's been done by God. What do you do? You become that. Your actions, your behavior, your lifestyle is rooted in what God has done. You're becoming what you are. Be clean. Why? Because God has made you clean. Be holy. Why? Because God has made you holy. Be righteous. Why? Because God has declared you righteous. And so the Christian life is not necessarily accomplishing. Christ has already accomplished everything. But the Christian life is living in light of that accomplishment that's been given to us. As we're working it out. As we're becoming what we are. And so it would be easy for Paul to say, 
Hey, church, you know better. Stop it. Do better. Try harder. But what does Paul do? He rebukes them. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, hey, guys, I can't believe you're doing this. Why are you doing this? It makes no sense. And then he warns them, if you continue to do this, This living an unrepentant life, here is a warning. If you continue down that path, you have no share in God's kingdom. And then he graciously reminds them. But remember, that's not who you are. That's who you used to be. Let me remind you of what God has done for you. Let me remind you, he has washed you. He has made you holy. He has declared you righteous. Now, become what you are. So so let's talk about application here. If you're taking notes. I think the very first application that we can learn from the text is this. The church is responsible for one another. The church is responsible for one another. And what I mean by that is, who is Paul addressing in in his letter? The church. What's Paul saying? Hey, if there's a dispute... A civil dispute, a trivial case, a matter of matters of life that revolves wrongdoing or cheating. What's he telling the church to do? He's telling the church, deal with it. It's your responsibility. And what he implies by that is you are responsible for one another. In the church discipline part, when when a brother was committing a a sin, a brother and sister committing sin, what did he tell the church to do? Deal with it. Why? Because the church is responsible for one another. Like one of the things I hope I can get through to you is this. The church is not a venue. It's not a place we just simply come to worship. Do we, come, do we come to a place to worship? Yeah. But that's not the church. The church is the people. And the metaphors that the, that the Bible used to describe the church is it's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. It's the building of God. It's the household of God. And if we go with that metaphor, just simply the body, are not all body parts responsible for one another? You stump your big toe and you break it, guess what? Does it impact other parts of your body? Yeah, and you're like, well, big toe's insignificant. Yeah, but you stomp it and you break it, you're in tremendous pain and you can't do a whole lot. The church is responsible for one another and we need to deal with one another's disputes. Now, that does not mean that every one of you are qualified to be mediators. And everybody should be involved in the dispute. No, that might not be your gifting. You might not be qualified. You might not serve as a good mediator, but I'm sure within the church there's somebody who can mediate conflict and is good with conflict resolution. Just like not anybody, everybody is going to be on stage and preach. I'm sure there are some of you other than me that can stand up here and proclaim God's word. We have all different giftings. 
And one of the things we have to understand, and I hope I, the Lord would just reveal this truth to you, is that we're responsible for one another. My sin, whether it's in private, has a direct effect on you. And your sin, even if it's in private, has a direct effect on me. Why? Because we're the body of Christ. We're connected, interrelated to one another, and we're responsible for one another. It's not just a venue. It's not just a place I go to, and when I'm done with you, I say, peace out. Good luck. No, we're responsible. We're interconnected. We impact one another. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. Church, be responsible for one another. If you allow this to breed, think about this in this church, church in Corinth. Two brothers have a legal dispute, they go to court. One wins. Two brothers now are arch enemies. How do you think that's going to impact the church? What's that going to force you to do? Pick sides. Think about a divorce. What happens in a divorce? You got to pick sides. You don't want to pick sides, but you're almost forced to pick sides. That's the point that Paul's making. So instead of us turning a blind eye and say, hey, that's none of my business... In a sense, it's your business because it's going to impact you one way or another. So you need to get involved in one way or another with wisdom. And so Paul is telling the church, church, be responsible one another. Se- se- second application is this. If you're taking notes, I think we need to take warning of living an unrepentant, sin- sinful lifestyle seriously. Take the warning of living an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle Seriously. This is a warning here. Verses 9 and 10 is a serious warning. If you continue living an unrepentant lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If sin so characterizes you that that's who you are becoming, you are not God's people. Now, that does not mean that as Christians we don't sin. Honestly, we sin a lot. But what's the distinction? When we sin, what do we do? We just pretend it doesn't exist. No. We repent. We confess it. We repent of it. That's the Christian life. The, the Christian life is that in our sins, in our fight, and in our struggle with sin, we continue to repent. We continually remind our need for forgiveness. And in our repentance, in our confession, we're like, I am so grateful that God has intervened and that he has washed me by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But an unbeliever, who continues in their sin, hides it, and it so consumes them and that they're so prideful that they don't want to confess it and they don't want to repent from it. Paul says, no, you go down that route. You've not understood the gospel. You will not inherit God's kingdom. And so that warning is there for us, not to, not to in a sense, uh, give us doubt, but in a sense for us to look into our lives and say, Like, am I quick to repent of my sins? When I find myself in this sin, is there a sin that so characterizes me that it's become who I, it's almost who I am now? 
Am I repenting of it? Am I trusting that he's paid for it? Am I constantly fighting it and wrestling against it? And so those warnings there, again, are a reminder. Inspect your life. Inspect your heart. Don't just go through life deceiving yourself. Pay attention to the warning. And with that warning... The instruction, which is the third one, and I've given you the phrase, so you can probably fill it out yourself. Become what you you are. Become what you are. If you think about it, it's only by God's grace that we are not described in verses 9 and verses 10. That's why Paul says, it used to be like that. But God intervened. God has washed me. He has sanctified me. He has justified me. I think when we become so overwhelmed and so in awe of the wonder of the salvation that God has accomplished for us, That is that motivator that helps us to become what we are. Why do you think Paul reminds them who they used to be and who they are now? Because he wants them to be in awe and wonder of the salvation that God has accomplished for them. But like, like think, just, let's just be honest. How many of you have, have co-workers, neighbors, friends, family members that are not believers? All of us. Like, 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 what's the difference between you and them? Are you smarter than them? Are you wiser than them? Do you have the ability to see a good deal when you see it? No. The only difference is, by God's mercy and grace, He has intervened. And somehow your eyes have been opened. And you realize, look at what God has done for me. He has washed me. He has made me holy. He has declared me righteous. Like it is a wonder that he's done that to me. I was not deserving of that. I was an enemy of God. I was actively at war against God. I was continually down my destructive path until God and some mystery and some and his mercy and his grace has intervened. And he has set me apart. And then the more and on wonder we are of that truth the more that motivates us to become what we are as we realize this precious gift that he has given us. And so now, because we've been made clean, because we've been set apart as his people, and we've been declared righteous, now we work hard to become that with the power of his spirit working in us. And so for the non-believer here, Like when you read verse 9 and 10, does that sin characterize you? Is that who you are? Like the warning is, if you continue down that path, the warning is eternal destruction. And the invitation for you is this. That is who you are. That path is going to go down destruction. But God has intervened. God has provided. Run to him 
and beg him for forgiveness, beg him for salvation. And what does he promise? If you ask, you will receive. And I think it is by God's grace that you look at verse 9 and verse 10 and you say, yep, that is me. That's the Lord opening up your eyes. But don't just say, yep, that is me. Say, yep, that is me. I need a Savior. And then ask Him, Lord, can you wash me? Can you forgive me? Can you make me new and make me holy and declare me righteous based on what your Son has done for me on the cross? So that's my instruction for you. In this moment, by faith, like cling to Him, look to Him, ask the Lord to forgive you. To make you holy and declare you righteous based on what his son has done on your behalf. And the Lord is good and the Lord is faithful and gracious and merciful that he would do that on your behalf. And then for the believer here, every week we struggle sin. And what we have a tendency to do in our struggle is sin. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget that God has washed us. We forget that he's made us holy. We forget that he's declared us righteous. Be reminded of how God has intervened in your life. And in light of what he's done, become what you are. This is why at the table, what are we reminded of? We're reminded of this table, how God has intervened. He has washed us by the precious blood of his son. He has set us apart and made us his holy people. And he has declared us righteous. So we get to sit at the table, not because of what we've done, but what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And in our fight and in our wrestle against sin, walking through this life, we'll constantly be reminded of the salvation that he has accomplished for us. And we pray that, Lord, stir this awe and wonder in the salvation you have accomplished so that that empower me to live a holy, clean, upright, pure life. So as we hand out these elements, meditate on these truths. Meditate on how God has intervened, how he's washed you, declared you ho- made you holy and declared you righteous, and that you belong to him. And now become what you are.